Good morning, Watermark. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, today's passage is Amos 5, verses 18 through 24. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall, only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. All right, all right, all right. Okay. Um, so, uh, <clears throat> I did a 5K this year. And the night before, the, my kid asked me, why are you doing this? And I, I actually, I, I told him I don't know. Why am I doing this? And it's bad because I actually recall that he asked me three years ago why I was doing this, and I still didn't have a good answer uh, even today. But anyhow, I hope everyone had a, a, a great Thanksgiving. Um, I don't know if we, we should call it a tradition, but it seems like ever since Pastor Tommy found out that I didn't really grow up with Thanksgiving, he's like, he's going to preach every Thanksgiving. Uh, and it's not because he's, you know, overwhelmed with a sense of guilt from gluttony. Uh, but here, uh, it's always a joy and privilege to share. And this morning, uh, we're going to talk about justice, uh, God's vision of justice. Um, and the, a myriad of different ways that how I think we understand it and have different understanding of justice. Uh, because there's a lot of different perspectives out there. You know, some might think in terms of social justice, some might think of uh, in, in terms of uh, wealth and equality and whatnot. Um, but with the amount of information that I think we have at our fingertips today, it can be very, you can easily be overwhelmed with the amount of uh, injustice that you hear across the world. Um, you know, wars, famine, uh, internment camps, genocide, um, ethnic cleansing. Additionally, inequality appears to be growing. Uh, racism and nationalism that seems to exclude at the detriment of others seems to be increasing. And it's a quite complicated um, way to view, uh, even from the Bible, because uh, there are very specific ways, but also it seems pretty broad. Uh, however, there is this overarching narrative uh, from Old Testament to New Testament uh, where the justice is primarily oriented toward the vulnerable. Um, and it's profoundly rooted in the image of God, as we will see today. So this is not just a call for us to be kind and charitable. No, it's, it's actually to identify with those who are oppressed and are suffering. So we'll look at the scriptures. And, and what I want to do today is sort of look at the, how the prophets understood, how the ancient church understood uh, we're going to look through the lens of Jesus and the cross and ask ourselves, are there actions that we need to change? Are there things that maybe we need to repent of? Are there things that we need to change course? Um, so we'll pray and get started. 
So, God, thank you, Lord, for this morning. Thank you, Lord, for family and friends. Um, thank you, Lord, for your community. Thank you for your spirit. I just ask you to give us wisdom. Um, ask you to uh, give us compassion. Um, and to be able to see things with your eyes. And to understand, not just from our own sense of self-preservation, but to see things from your point of view. So reorient our hearts and our minds and reveal even within me that is not aligned uh, with your heart and what you have for, for your world. So I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So uh, there is a specific vision of justice uh, within the biblical narrative, right, that, that God sort of lays out. Uh, and it may be different depending on who you ask. Uh, for example, what was it about a year ago? My 10-year-old, he's really into Pokemon. And there was a Pokemon card ban at Watermark about a year ago. I don't know if it's still intact. Yeah. Oh, my kid was upset. They were really uh, upset about it. And whenever he sees the Pokemon ban sign, he'll be like, that is so stupid. I don't know why we're doing this. Uh, and he called that injustice. He's like, that is unjust. And I was like, I, do you know what that means? Um, and, you know, it's funny enough, but they, they actually, there was an underground trading, like where they would secretly trade Pokemon cards with one another. Uh, don't tell Nicole that. Is she here? Okay, too late. All right. So things get a little complicated. Justice, understanding can be a little bit complicated. You could go to different places around the world, even in the U.S., and you could ask different folks uh, regarding justice. You could talk about human rights. You could talk about women's rights. You could talk about uh, uh, the, the suffering of the poor. You could talk about the LGBTQ issues. You could be talking about uh, immigration. You could be talking about uh, having clean drinking water, right? So there's a, a very different way, and you're not so certain if everyone is sort of on the same page. My wife and I, we used to be uh, part of a, a mission organization called YWAM, Youth with a Mission, and we were there for almost a decade. Uh, and we were in a conference, and uh, we were leading a justice workshop at this missions conference. And, uh, you know, to get... To get started, we were asking the question with the audience, like, hey, you know, what is, what is your definition of justice? What do you think justice is? And this one guy uh, from Central America, mo most of the people were from Caribbean, but we had people from Central America, South America. And this one guy from Central America said, justice, to do justice is to punish those who have done wrong, those who, have, who deserve uh, discipline or retribution in that sense. And then he went, us, he went on to tell us a story how, uh, I think, I don't, I don't know how long, but it, it seemed like it was pretty recent by the way he described it, that he, he was hearing on the radio that, that there was a fugitive on the loose. And he heard that he was going, the fugitive was going toward his property. And he told us that he got the, his gun and went to go after the guy. And he said he caught the guy and he didn't have to shoot, but he said, if I had to, I would have shot the guy. And he said, that's justice. I said, okay, thank you for sharing. Uh, really cool, neat story. Thank you. And uh, there are different ways and, and, uh, to understand. And I think the way this man was telling his story was talking about justice in more or less a retributive sense. And many other Christians, and I imagine some of us here today, 
are thinking about justice in regard for like eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth type of understanding, right? Um, but it's also in terms of justice as an order and law upholding it. So it's not just in a punitive sense because uh, Old Testament does speak about justice in that way in terms of retribution. However, many theologians and scholars will point that out that majority of the time when there is this talk of justice, it's restorative. It's about making someone whole, including the wrongdoers. And so that's very important to understand. And, and you see this arch and this narrative and this epic story sort of going towards with a climatic point with Jesus Christ. And it's much more revealed regarding what we understand of justice, uh, which we'll talk a little bit more about uh, in, a, in a little bit. But we got to start out, what did God mean as he was speaking through his people and prophets when he meant justice? So looking at Amos, um, prophet Amos, uh, here's a peace sign, right, before he was cool. Prophet Amos, he was a shepherd and a farmer, right? And he was carrying a message uh, of, of, from God to the northern kingdom of Israel. So by this time, uh, the kingdom of Israel was already divided. This is much, uh, much more, I don't know, two, three hundred years after King Solomon. Um, so it was pretty divided uh, in terms of the northern kingdom and the south kingdom, which was Judah, right? And, and uh, Amos had a message specific, specifically for the northern kingdom to the king Jeroboam II. Uh, who was a military ruler. And they were doing fairly well. Both countries are actually doing fairly well, but uh, Amos is focusing specifically on the northern kingdom and Jeroboam. And, and uh, they were building their empire. They were being uh, pretty wealthy. Uh, they, were, uh, they, they had a lot of influence, military might and influence within that region. And, uh, and, and what was happening was... They, along with their influence and being wealthy and being well off, uh, they picked up some gods along the way. And they started committing idolatry. They started following other gods. They still worship God. They still, uh, you know, uh, committed to all the yearly festivals. They did all the sacrifices, did all the right things. But they still had other gods on the side. And so Amos has this prophetic message for Israel about how God was just so tired of the idolatry and injustice in the land. And the idolatry and injustice was very much connected. Because it led them to be unjust and, and cruel to the poor and take advantage of the, the oppressed. And so basically what was happening was the rich and the ruling class had set up policies and, and, and almost a monopoly of resources in the land, right? And it allowed the powerful and the rich to consolidate more and more power and more and more land uh, against the poor. And the way they did it was unjust and very twisted. You're talking about strategic and systematic injustice toward the poor by, poor, uh, by pouring and piling on those who were oppressed and peasant farmers with debt, High taxes, right? And they had a real tough time economically. On top of that, there was inflation. So food was getting expensive, right? People were having a tough time to eat. 
And today we talk about living paycheck to paycheck, but these people were going from meal to meal and, and, and unable to eat for several days. And it's a real contrast to the rich because the rich were importing goods. They were, you know, living pretty well uh, while some of the poor among them were barely surviving. So what happens? With high taxes and high interest debt, the poor found themselves indebted to the rich and to the ruling class. They lost their land to the rich and sold themselves into debt slavery, meaning that they went into slavery to pay off their debts to the rich. And this is what's happening. And you see, you see the people of Israel in the process of becoming more wealthy and powerful forgot about the covenant that they made with God. And they only focused on what they thought they were supposed to do in a very empty and superficial manner. And at that point, even though they were participating in all the religious stuff, right, and sacrifices and worship, Uh, In reality, they forgot about God. So if God sounds pretty upset, it's because he was. He was pretty upset. Here's the people who were once enslaved, where God liberated them and brought them out of enslavement only to enslave their fellow brothers and sisters. They were taking advantage of their Brethren and sisters, while they were in the most desperate, desperate situation. And so hearing woe to you from Amos is quite fitting. Um, In verse 21 to 24, Amos carries this message from God. And this is the Eugene Peterson's version, by the way. I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religious projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take with your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. In the NIV, that last verse, uh, 24, it says, But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. And what you hear in this passage is God seeking justice and righteousness. Now, in the Old Testament, justice and righteousness actually comes up quite a bit. And it's a very common phrase in the Bible. In Psalm 89, verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness goes before you. Uh, In Jeremiah 22, verse 3, it does says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver the one who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor. Also, do not mistreat or do violence to the stranger, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. So these words, these two words are used actually quite frequently. So let's take a look. So justice. Now, first, when Amos and the prophets is talking about justice, what kind of justice is he talking about, right? Today in America, we use uh, justice. You know, some people might talk about social justice. Others might talk about personal liberty or wealth or equality and all that. But how does the Bible define it? So this word, uh, justice, um, in Hebrew is mishpat. 
right? And in the Hebrew Bible, it shows up quite frequently, and it basically means treating others fairly or in an equitable way, right? And while some may think that, you know, in this retributive sense or in a judicial way even, such as person paying for a crime or doing something wrong, majority of the time, we're talking about restoring and renewing justice. Those who have been wronged or unjustly treated are restored and given back what was taken from them. So the focus is not so much on punishing, but restoring and making everyone whole, including those who have been unjust. Now, righteousness is the word tzedakah. And for us today, we, we understand sedaka or righteousness as sort of this personal morality, right? Or sort of being pious. But that is not the way uh, they understood righteous back then. It's quite different. Because righteousness and justice is actually synonymous within that biblical definition. The way we see in the Hebrew scriptures and the prophets talk about righteousness, it actually aligns with justice, Right? And it's used quite interchangeably in Old Testament. And once you understand it that way, your understanding of justice sort of deepens as well. Because Seneca is defined as right relations with another or doing right by someone. It's not personal holiness. It's not even about being right. It's, about, it's not even abstaining from things. It's about how I treat my fellow men and women and children. So it's a relational word. So righteousness and tzedakah is this covenantal relational word. And it's not righteousness as we understand it, right? Because by its definition, you can't be righteous all by yourself. It's not about being morally right or morally correct or even about personal virtue. Because at its core, it's doing right by my fellow human created in the image of God. And I understand this might be a little bit of a big shift. But for those who speak two languages or trilingual or whatever or more uh, can understand that there are some words from your home country that doesn't translate well in your, your, uh, your adopted country, if that makes sense. This is not the best example, but when I first came to America, uh, I went to the grocery store and I was like uh, seeing that there were some food items that were 50% fat-free. And I used to think, that is so nice of them that they would give 50% of the fat for free. And that went on for several years until I realized, no, it means there is no fat in there. But that's what I'm trying to say for those who are bilingual may have understand this a little bit more, that there's some words that doesn't translate as well uh, compared to others, right? We, sometimes it's so, sort of imposed and it's like sort of, a, a, you know, kind of misshaped. Um, so this may be a big shift compared to how people understand righteousness, I think, in English. But this is, this is the way that the ancient Israel sort of understood and how those in the early church also understood justice and righteousness. Now, when you understand justice and righteousness together, it can give a sense of true justice or social justice within a relational covenantal framework. This is according to Nicholas Walterstoff, very meaty name. It sounds Walter Stolf. Uh, he's, a, he's a theologian uh, um, and, a, and a philosophy teacher. He used to teach at Yale. He's retired now. But he wrote a very prolific book, very respected within the academia as well, uh, called Justice, Rights and Wrong. And, and Walter Stolf makes the case that within the Hebrew scripture, uh, God is focusing on what is called the quartet of the vulnerable. And he describes it uh, that it's the widow, that it's the orphan, 
that is the immigrant and the poor. And many theologians use that language and agree, including people like Tim Keller. And we see in, in, uh, in Psalm chapter 146, 6 to 9, perfectly captured here. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down, and the Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner, sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. Now, the reason why these set up people were focused uh, was not some random picking and choosing, right? If you look at the quartet uh, of the vulnerable, all these categories of people actually did not have any connection to land, right? And within that time frame, a majority of the people with power and influence had connection to land, right? Um, and so, I mean, for example, if, you, if your husband died, there is a good chance that there would, might have been others uh, who would try to take the land away from you, including uh, the husband's brother or neighbor, right? And that happened quite often. And, and it's not much different than today in some parts of the world. I have a friend from uh, Sierra Leone and, and in West Africa and uh, where his mother, uh, mother's land was sort of in dispute. Um, there was a guy who was trying to claim her land. And he felt bad because he was overseas uh, and he couldn't be with her every step of the way because uh, I think the whole thing took out five, six, seven years to uh, resolve. Uh, but here was, I, and his father passed away, so it was just her uh, as a widow uh, trying to claim her land. And, and for those who understand Sierra Leone, you know, there was a civil war. So sometimes documents uh, were lost or hard to come by. And, and my friend was telling me what grieves him is that it's not that, not only that this was happening, but it was another Christian. And not only was he a Christian, he was an, a bishop. And not only was he a bishop, he was the guy who was leading the Truth and Reconciliation Project in Sierra Leone, trying to take this land. A Truth and Reconciliation Project, somewhat you know, similar to what was happening in South Africa with Desmond Tutu. Uh, so he was extremely frustrated, and they went through the courts and was able to maintain the land after several years. But here was a woman, a widow, whose land was being challenged and almost taken from her. And it's very similar to the complaint that Amos had uh, with people trying to take advantage. So when we talk about the quartet of the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor, these four usually didn't have connection or claim to land. Now, at the same time, I don't want you to think that it was limited just to these four categories. It's just that these, these categories, those categories, and the, the language points to a vision of justice that we are to care for the most vulnerable within our land and community. And for us today in America, it's still the poor, the homeless, without much economic opportunity. There might be racial and systematic injustice. It might be the gay kid pushed out of their community or cut off their, from, from their family. It may be the refugees trying to claim asylum. It may still be the orphans or the kids in the foster care system. And my wife was part of a mentoring group called Steadfast. Uh, Mickey sort of uh, helped us 
help our church partner with Steadfast Ministry. And through that ministry, we were able, uh, my wife was able to mentor some of these kids uh, that were in uh, juvenile detention centers. And a good chunk of them are sort of also in the foster care system. And what they're realizing is that uh, as we were understanding more of the issue, that there is second and third generation of kids that are in the foster care. Right? And so once you grasp that sense that you realize that you're dealing with something that's generational, that's something institutional and systematic evil that's happening. What's important to understand is that when you have justice and righteousness, right, Mishpat and Sadaka together, the vision of justice that God puts forth is profoundly social. The focus is on how we treat our fellow human beings. So going back to Amos, these folks who were doing fairly well and privileged, not because they worked hard, right, but because they primarily were uh, able to become wealthy by doing injustice and taking advantage of the lesser and the powerless. They appeared to be doing all the right things, right? Religiously, they were worshiping and celebrating and making sacrifices, and they kept the appearance of following the law and, and to sort of be seen as righteous. But Amos is telling us righteousness in the eyes of God was based on how you were uh, doing right by those who were in the most vulnerable situation. And he goes on to say that their worship and righteousness is all a lie. And that God hates, and I tell my kids that hate is a very strong word, but here it is, that he hates and despises their fake religious worship to God. Without Mishpat and Tzedakah, it was meaningless. It was evil and sinful. So when Amos and Micah and Isaiah and others are prophesying and, and critiquing the people of Israel and other nations about justice and righteousness, they're talking about making someone else's problem my own. So then, God comes down as a human being, right? Let's go to Jesus. Uh, he's born, going through the human experience, and then right from the start, Jesus is not playing games. And he sounds very similar to the prophets of the old. Uh, he says, Woe to you, Pharisees. And Jesus is already woeing here, right? So you know you're in trouble. Because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. And very similar to Amos, Micah, and Isaiah and other prophets, but what Jesus does, he goes to marry justice with love. And he goes on to tell parables such as the one separating the sheep and goat in, in, uh, in Matthew 25. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see, and when, when did we do these things? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then you start to see this theologically profound motif in the Bible of how others, especially the, the least of these, the vulnerable, the oppressed, the marginalized, are being treated, having a connection of how God is being treated and related. 
Then Jesus goes on to change a classic prayer, the Shema Israel, right? Uh, which Tommy gets us to say once in a while. And this was Jesus' response to a teacher when uh, one of the teachers of the law asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And he repeats Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. And that's like, of course, very good answer. But then he adds Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. The core vision, why, why all of this is sort of important, is that at the core of God's vision of justice is this fundamental truth that we are made in the image of God. Men, women, children, gay, straight, Americans, uh, Africans, Europeans, Asians, Jews, possibly Canadians. I don't know. I heard they're, I was told that they're uh, godless liberals with their socialist medicine. Um, it's okay. I have Canadian friends, so I can say that. All right. But many in the ancient world, including Aristotle, view things very, very differently regarding uh, compared to contrast to this image of God idea. His views on women were that they were, they should be subject to men. They should not have authority. And many also believed, uh, including Aristotle, that slavery was a natural part of society, that some humans should be slaves. And this idea was studied and quoted by many during the colonization as it took place that some humans are by nature, should be slaves. And this absolutely contradicts the vision of justice we see in the Bible. It's a fundamental understanding of being made in the image of God that we are not to harm or devalue another. To devalue and treat people less than human is a serious violation of the image of God. And this is a fundamental to understanding the vision of justice and righteousness. And as Amos and other prophets spoke very strongly against injustice and what was happening, right, to those carrying the image of God, perpetrated by also those who were carrying the image of God as well, it's right there in the beginning of Genesis, and it's reiterated again and again that humans are made in the image of God and have the right to be treated with fairness and justice. And then what we see is Jesus emphasizes justice with love. Jesus confronts evil and sin and proclaims the good news to the poor and justice for the vulnerable and ultimately on the cross as well. There's, a, uh, there's an Old Testament a Hebrew scholar. I believe he's retired as well, actually. He wrote a commentary in the book of Proverbs, and he articulates this idea of justice uh, this way. The, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. The event where Jesus became human and lived amongst us and crucified, he disadvantaged himself for the world. The entire world, embodying Mishpat and Seneca on the cross, and on the cross was where his love and justice interlocked perfectly. And this is much more uh, than radical way of understanding love compared to the world and within our communities it, or in, within our culture. Because it's not merely just exclusion, acceptance, or tolerance, or even being civil. 
God's vision of justice is to disadvantage oneself, sacrifice oneself for the benefit of others. That is the love of God Jesus was teaching his disciples. That he was not a king who would lord over people with power and mind, but the one to lay down his power to serve the lowest of the low. And that's the way we understand, we should understand power. That Jesus comes in and totally turns that upside down, right? And he came and he subverted Israel's hope of a sort of an earthly king and an earthly kingdom. And he subverted people's understanding of a Messiah, of what it meant to be a Messiah. He subverts our understanding of justice. And that's by the power of love and self-sacrifice that he is trying to teach then and now by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So, then what do we, why do we continue to commit injustice? Continue to devalue one another. Why we devalue one race, we glorify another. We exclude the immigrant and continue to show violence toward women and children. And this is where I would argue that our theology actually have real world consequences. If you believe in God that is bent towards retribution, you yourself will be looking through a punitive lens and justice all around you. If you believe, if you believe in a violent God, it only supports and justifies your violence. How we think about these issues impacts much more than what we think. If you're following the path that cross was more of a retributive justice than some had to be, you know, some has to be punished. Someone has to be punished for breaking the law. And you're much easier to say that I can't help the refugees or the homeless because they're breaking the laws as well. And we shouldn't help the homeless because they're breaking laws and taking advantage of us, right? And they may use drugs and whatnot. And these are the consequences for our theology. James Cone, who is uh, considered the father of black liberation theology, he, he passed away last year. One of his last books was called The Cross and the Lynching Tree, where he compared uh, the lynching tree to the cross. And there's a strong connection between the two symbols. He also spoke about the parallel of Jesus' suffering and death with slavery, segregation, and ultimately the lynching tree. He goes on to make this argument, and I want you to think about this. The Bible was written mostly by those who did not have power. Majority of the time, you're talking about minorities who were in captive, oppressed, and are suffering. And it was written to give hope to those who were suffering and oppressed as well. And that soon changed because after the 4th century, uh, the, the empire of the world and the church locked pretty, were wrapped up pretty tightly. Not only that, the majority of the theology that we have today has been shaped by those who are in privileged positions and power. And I'm not saying that these folks got things wrong, but we have to admit that it was usually the powerful reading and interpreting through their own lens. And at times misunderstood the message for the suffering people who were oppressed. Here was Jesus who came from an oppressed group under the hill of an empire to where some believed that he was for the empire and for their politics. You can't worship a God who was killed by the empire while promoting another empire. You can't do that. The cross prevents that. It should be offensive to those in power and privileged position because it liberates and lifts up those who are facing injustice and those who are oppressed and powerless. 
And to understand Jesus through the empire's lens is like trying to understand Jesus through the Roman Empire's eyes. And many people today have bowed down to the ideology of different political groups, obsessed with righteousness that has been toward retributive justice. However, we should not allow any political groups or their ideology to hijack our faith. We have to remember that ideology and idolatry are very, very lined together. Power and privilege can easily corrupt the vision of justice that God set forth, and we can very well find ourselves working against God's justice. James Cone talks about this in his book, uh, he, in his, uh, in his book and he sort of reuses the story of the, the Cain and Abel, that the blood of the innocent is crying out, and God is asking, where is your brother? And his concern is that many Christians have replied, am I my brother's keeper? What many miss, I think, when we're uh, reading the Good Samaritan story is that we place ourselves, we compare ourselves to the Good Samaritan or those who were passing by. But here's the thing. Clearly, the victim was a Jew, and Jesus was trying to get the audience to identify themselves as the disadvantaged. Because for us to do justice and be righteous, we have to identify with the oppressed and the suffering community. Even if you work out the Shema backwards, right? What we have is that when we're doing injustice, we are unloving God and unloving our fellow man and woman and children. So uh, I'm going to end with this, and the communion folks can uh, get up, and prayer team can get up as well uh, in the front. Our response to this vision and justice and righteousness is, are we willing to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of the vulnerable? And I know what I'm asking is extremely, extremely hard, and I'm very, very convicted I was preparing for this message. Are we creating this kind of justice in our community and for those in our global neighbors? We need to fight for justice, but we're not called to fight each other And sometimes over our zeal to make things right, we make humans into the enemy. And even through the lens, you know, of this person being racist and destructive, we have to call out the image of God and awaken the reality of God in their lives. And humans are never the enemy because they too are the made in the image of God. I'm inspired by this uh, people like Daryl Davis. Uh, he's a blues musician, uh, and for a good part of his life, he actually befriended an imperial wizard uh, because the guy saw him play uh, music very, very well, and he was impressed, uh, and he wanted to learn a little bit more. And so Daryl would invite him uh, to, uh, to see his band play in you know, the clubs and hole in the walls and all that stuff, and the wizard would invite him to the, uh, the rally. And uh, they started befriending each other, and, and Daryl would invite him. And, and at first, uh, he would come with a bodyguard. And then, after a couple of years, he would come by himself. And then, he would actually invite Daryl to his house. And then, initially, he still said, I believe everything with the KKK, that it's all true, uh, that we, we should segregate the races. But he said he respected Daryl very, very much because he took to took the time to engage. And a few years later, he gave up his robe and gave it to Daryl. And since then, uh, over 200 Klansmen have given up their robes to Daryl. 
We have to remember that even those who seek to do injustice and harm are made in the image of God. And this understanding went well with, the, with Martin Luther King when he would ask for those who would protest with him to let them realize that those races out there are not the enemy. If you want to join me, this is what uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said to, uh, to those who want to uh, help him with his protests and the rallies. If you are going to protest with me, you're not just doing it for our folks, that you're not just doing it for community or justice, but you also want to save the racist that's out there. So the vision of justice that God set forth is restorative and reconciling, and it's done by peacemaking and loving your fellow humans, including your enemies. So we're going to go into now time of communion, and we do this every week. And I, I want you to realize, as we take part in communion, uh, the understanding of justice and righteousness, that we are to love our fellow man, and this deeply understanding of that we are all created in the image of God. Um, and he, there is a calling, a grand vision of justice where he is calling us to do more. Let's pray. God, I ask you to reorient our hearts and our minds. Help us to realize that the enemies that we see are also made in the image of God and that you've died for them as well. I pray as we take communion you would give us boldness and strength and wisdom and patience and courage to fight injustice within our land, to do right. Help us, Holy Spirit. Amen.